Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of your own personal Beatles. My name's Jack Pelling and with me is Robin Allender. Hi Robin. Hi Jack. Happy Beatle Christmas. Is it Christmas? Well, it is for Beatles fans. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, of course. It's it's be- it's better than Christmas. It's bigger than Christmas. Yeah, it's big- bigger than Christmas. <laughs> it is, um, yeah. So not only do we have a fantastic episode coming up with uh, Adam Buxton, which we're very excited about, um, today also sees the release of Peter Jackson's long-awaited epic, Get Back, which we're going to talk about uh, a little bit because we've had the massive pleasure of being able to dig into it already. But firstly, a little bit about our interview with Adam, which was really exciting, someone we've wanted to get on for ages. So yeah, it was really, really great to have him on and it was a fantastic chat. Mm, Yeah, it was... um... And very flattering to think that he's listened in to it as well. And he, he, I mean, he liked the jingles. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's the biggest compliment you can get, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the artwork (laughs) and the jingles and stuff is very, very specific. Um, I actually cut out all of the flattering parts because I thought it might make us look big headed. But Mm. uh, no, it's lovely that, um, lovely that Adam is a a fan of the podcast and stuff. So um, a brilliant way to sort of tying up 2021. And there's loads of fantastic chat about in there about not only his sort of personal Beatles journey, but we talk about, you know, him interviewing Paul, obviously. Mm. And um, we talk a lot about sharing the Beatles relationship with your parents or whatever and and sort of trying to bridge generational gaps and stuff like that with the Beatles and other kinds of music which is really fascinating actually yeah I think you know obviously you're talking about his dad bad dad as you may know him as from the Adam and Joe show and uh and then yeah talking about Adam's relationship with his own children who one of whom is a big Beatles fan now as well um it was just a great chat he was so lovely it was really interesting as well like because he talked about this thing of and it's a really important thing but it's it's for maybe a generation slightly above us but remembering the Beatles singles being in the charts mm-hmm. uh when Wendy Erskine mentioned this as well in a bit that I didn't include in the chat but it's it's uh, it was 1976 when the singles were reissued and can you believe there was a week in April where 23 of the top 100 singles were Beatles songs. In 1976? Yeah. Of all times. Of all times. So, and which included Yesterday, which was never released as a single in in the UK. And so I think that that's something that we've never really talked about, but has obviously had a huge impact on kind Mm. of Beatles fans of a certain generation to remember them as, you know, a contemporary band, really, because of those singles being kind of inescapable at that period you know and uh, another thing that's weirdly come up twice in a row is styles on 45 i know yeah yeah um so we talk quite in depth about that i mean the first time i heard styles of 45 again was slightly too young for it but i remember being at a wedding and just thinking what the fuck is this like i just couldn't (laughs) you know i couldn't believe how weird it was but yeah that's come up a couple of times yeah 
And uh, speaking of the Adam and Joe show, Adam also talked about the time that he interviewed Ray Manzarek, uh, the mm. keyboard player of The Doors, um, for a section of their show called Vinyl Justice, um, in particular Ray talking about Rubber Soul. And he, Adam was very kind enough to give us the audio rushes for that interview. So yeah. we've got some uh, never heard before, I don't think, wow. um, extras from that interview with Ray Manzarek where he talks about hanging out with the Beatles and Rubber Soul and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. that was that's that's really worth listening it's amazing sure. it's a shame in a way though because adam's impression of him was really good as well <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and and also you get to hear which you may have already heard already because if you're a fan of adam buxton but adam buxton's fantastic version of uh how do you sleep uh which is which is really something. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely superb. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's so funny. And sp- speaking of impressions from, from the good to the ugly, we also uh, reenact a little bit of um, the uh, 2000 TV movie, The Two of Us, mm. starring Aidan Quinn and Jared Harris, where, um, you know, in, in an off cut from a planned segment that Adam was going to do with Paul, um, <laughs> I got Paul Sloppy Seconds and um, do... Well, my best at impersonating him. Um, I think you did with, a good job with Adam and doing John. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not the worst Paul McCartney impression we've had on that, this podcast. I really want to wouldn't want us to take that torch from uh, Pictures Trail, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but it's well worth a listen for fans of terrible accents. Which yeah, um, yeah there's also some some good fun at the end with some scatological Beatles titles. Yeah. and uh, um, it was just a, a terrific. There's so much to dig into. It's going to be quite a long episode, but and um, you know this week. Um, we probably don't have time for any correspondence. We'll save that for the next one. But we can't really do a Beatles podcast coming out today without talking a little bit about Get Back. Mm. Yeah, so there's a lot to digest. There is. And I should say from the off that um, my immediate reaction um, in seeing this and knowing that we were going to talk about it on the day it comes out is that I really don't want to do a sort of spoilerific deep dive into that i think we'll save that for another day Mm. um because part of the joy of it is just being the constant string of surprises and little beautiful little moments so i'm not going to ruin any of that but we'll talk about it in sort of quite broad terms yeah sure Um, and and so feel free to skip if uh Yeah, and if you're here just, uh, if you don't want to hear any of that until you've seen the whole thing, um, or you're just an Adam Buxton fan and you don't know who we are and you want to, you know, skip all this blithering, then um, go about 15 minutes in and, uh, you know, you'll save yourself a bit of time. Um, But um, yeah, so I'm about, we should say it's nine hours long and we only got the episode a few days ago, so I haven't had time to watch the whole thing. I'm about halfway through episode three, which is about seven hours in, um, and you've just seen the first one, but that's still a good stint. Oh yeah. But I think, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but it's absolutely extraordinary Mm. (laughs) i mean a guest we've got coming up on the show likened the fact to of this almost magical experience of i don't know if any you've had this experience of hearing a voicemail from someone who's died or something like that Mm. but there is that kind of just amazing feeling of these are people who you know so well for not know personally but you know so well from their music and you're seeing their lives in extraordinary detail from the newspapers they're reading to the TV they watched the night before to the songs they've been listening to, to their, their way of learning and writing uh, and collaborating and arguing 
and laughing yeah. in all that de- and and having tea and drinking lovely what looks like a lovely glass of beer <laughs> yes <laughs> um, the pale ale please mel <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so yeah it's for me the first thing was that extraordinary level of detail mm. you can smell the fag smoke yeah. and i don't know if you've ever done a session like that if you've played in a band and rehearsed mm. for long periods like that but it's i had that feeling of like your ears ringing after having amps on all day kind yeah. of thing it's got that kind of sense of the frustrations which you know we're all familiar with from the let it be filmed sessions and everything um but that kind of feeling of sitting around not knowing what to do and stuff i remember once playing in a band where it was like you know we were just jamming away having stupid jam for ages and the manager came in and turned all the amps off and said do you know how much this is costing us (laughs) <laughs> but, but like there's something of that with this where it's just like yeah there's no plan there's yeah. absolutely no plan and it's just that kind of yeah waiting for things to come together is the kind yeah. of extraordinary thing to it i mean it's sort of as i said to you yesterday the overarching feeling of it is that this is an absolutely terrible idea yeah <laughs> from the beginning but yeah as you say i mean i think it's in, what i found absolutely incredible is you know these people are probably the most you know well documented people certainly of that era mm. and i have seen hundreds if not thousands of hours of footage with them but just being so close to them and it being so candid and mm. just the, the fact that it's really taking its time to sort of follow them around you know there's no montages there's no sort of one of them saying oh we, we should get a keyboard player and then cutting to billy preston walk in like all of these decisions are all mm. being made in kind of real time yeah and because of that they've never felt so tangible yes and yeah. you f- completely feel like you're in the room with them. And as you mm. say, like that thing of that ringing in your ears, I felt like I was getting tired when they were getting tired. Yeah, like yeah. I was getting annoyed with certain members when other people were rubbing each other up the, up the wrong yeah. way and stuff. And I was so emotionally invested in it because yeah. it's almost in real time. Yeah. And you know them so well already. Mm. It, it's like watching, like the only, I mean, I remember talking about this with Jeff Lloyd, but it's like, it's, and it's, you know, a bit of a sort of, well-worn point but it is like watching four siblings yeah uh, or four old friends who've known each other for sort of of 20 years and especially in that first episode Mm. you know sort of broadly where it's going because you know it's in three parts and i don't think it's giving anything away to say that episode one is sort of twickenham which Mm. we all know doesn't end superbly episode two is um savile row and episode three is sort of the build-up and then the rooftop sort of Mm. concert so there is a really good sort of three-act structure in Mm. setting it out like that and i was quite cynical maybe because of peter jackson's previous of extending things that really didn't need to be extended (laughs) but um uh, yeah i just i I think it's actually a brilliant decision because the pace allows you to just completely immerse yourself in the world and get sort of really sucked into it and um you know there's one particular bit where um i think you know everyone knows that george walks out but just how devastating is for especially paul there's a moment when he's like and then there were two and when they're wondering who's going to turn up to work the next day and stuff it's just absolutely amazing well i mean the dynamic between paul and george is absolutely fascinating really 
because you're siding with George so much. Because again, we don't want to go into like too much detail here. I'm sure we will at some point down the line. But like George bringing in songs and Paul more or less ignoring him, you know, mm. and you can see this magnetic chemistry when they're in the mood between Paul and John. And George is kind of such an outsider from that. And if you're thinking like he's been with these people for so many years. And, you know, he's probably had to deal with that exact dynamic so many times that you feel his frustration and you get that real insight into it. And the other fascinating thing about George, I think, is he's one of those musicians where he's always, like, comparing himself to other people. There's Dylan, there's Clapton. He'd obviously just been hanging out with Dylan. And, like, when he's playing the guitar, it's like he's trying wah and he's trying tremolo. Mm -hmm. And it's like he can just never quite relax into it. There's there's this footage I'm sure I can remember seeing of him playing on a US tour with the Beatles. Um, you know, it must have been 64, 65 or something. And between every kind of bit he's playing on the guitar, he's checking the volume control on his, on his guitar, mm. checks turned up all the way. And there's that neurosis to George, which I think comes across so well, like in a situation where he kind of has no voice because Paul is dominating so much that like he resorts to this negativity so much you know yeah that's an insane idea you know there's a lot of that you know <laughs> and mm. it's like and part of him is, is him being sort of the pragmatist as well as, yeah as, yeah um but you know again i'm a little bit further ahead than you so mm. what is fascinating is to see how that how quickly Mm. that gets patched up as soon yeah, as they're yeah. out of that toxic place mm. and you need it after part one let me tell yeah, you yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because it's emotionally exhausting and then yeah. as soon as you get there it's pretty much joy all the way you said as soon as the rose would tell you as soon as out. the right well that's it and I, I yeah. was kind of joking when i said that yeah um but actually there is a lot in what you say about him playing the cherry les paul which is my um, favorite playing... guitar. The heartbreaking moment where it falls over. <laughs> yeah, and no one gives a shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I literally went, <gasps> yeah. And then yeah, they yeah. just watch Let's it fall see. over. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's Clapton's guitar and stuff, and it is him trying to play, and there are bits where he's like, you know, it needs to sound more like Clapton or whatever. Mm. And it's like, no, it's you're, you're very good, George. <laughs> just yeah, just exactly. be you. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think give that, uh, that getting that guitar in, and then obviously we see sort of Billy Preston arrive and stuff. Mm. Um, it's just, I think we'll... As I say, we'll, once we've watched it all and had a bit of time to digest, but yeah. it's a couple of things that I, I would like to flag. Mm. <laughs> Firstly, I've never seen, we never really seen that much of Michael Lindsay Hogg in the original documentary. Yeah, he's he's, he's completely mad. <laughs> I love him. I mean, can he's I say fantastic. the bit that really made me laugh is when they're thinking about where to do this gig and he suggests doing it in an orphanage. Well, first of all, he says a hospital, and then he's like, yeah. "Well, but not a not a horrible hospital, you know, a hospital with like kids with broken legs." Yeah, he's very strange. Yeah. An orphanage. And it, yeah. Um, <laughs> Really, yeah, strange guy. I think mm. the, it's lovely seeing the relationship with Mal Evans, particularly yeah. Long and Winding Road, where Paul is mm. just bouncing ideas off him and he's contributing, you know, because Mal Evans was writing the lyrics down to distribute to people. He was such yeah, a, you yeah. know, as well as banging on the anvil, which we see in Let It Be as well. But you Yeah, know. And getting, there's a bit where George is like, Mal, can you get me a purple dicky bow, bow tie? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, sure. It's yeah. like, what the hell are yeah. you supposed to do that? 
Um, but yeah, but that's the lovely thing about all these sort of like satellite characters mm. popping in and out like Mal, and then and then there's also this slightly sort of weird charlatan called uh, Magic Alex. Oh, Magic Alex, of, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, who I always didn't know that much about. He sort of waves in and out of the old one, but yeah, you know, he turns up with these like absolutely awful prototypes and was yeah. obviously uh, responsible for being building the first desk which is completely complete shit rubbish and didn't work <laughs> and there's that great story about magic alex where he, he part of his kind of um goal to create an eight track uh mixing desk involved putting eight speakers in savile row <laughs> as if each track <laughs> needs its own speaker but um yeah but that's a great bit i loved about because they're just, you know they're obsessed with getting it to eight tracks at this stage um yeah uh and there's a great bit Paul McCartney says it's really, I know for a fact the Beach Boys have got eight tracks. It's really partridge. <laughs> yeah, I know for a yeah. fact Martin Lewis got two power showers out of them. <laughs> <laughs> one for him, one for his brother-in-law. But yeah, no, I love that. It's brilliant. And we haven't talked about Ringo. No, I mean, Ringo is um, he's relatively taciturn. He is. And John Harrison in an interview said the thing that surprised him when he was going through all the, you know, he was transcribing the conversations was how quiet Ringo was and how miserable mm. he seemed. But I think Ringo is, well, A, I've never met a drummer who doesn't, who knows when to shut up as much as him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've ever practiced with a band, you know, the drummer yeah. is just playing along and, you know, just, but Ringo just absolutely knows, knows exactly his role, which is not to demean mm. him at all, or to diminish his role, but mm. like, and one just wonderful bit where Paul says, you know, if it comes to it, I'll do it on my own or something. But Ringo says something like, I could watch him play the piano all day or something. Yeah, and it's just such yeah. a sweet moment because he knows what he's in this inc- with these incredible people. And he knows his role as a drummer. And it's just like, he's just so fantastically stoical. And yeah, I, and I, I think he's full of good humor in it. Yeah. And it's very much warts and all because he's got a terrible spot at one point, hasn't it? <laughs> but for these moments, which just feel like just incredible sacred moments, there, there is just an incredible bit, which, which is the birth of the song Get Back, mm. um, which is probably the outstanding moment from episode one, really. It's like a conjuring trick. Yeah. It's, it's almost like they're doing it in a biopic and you're like, oh, yeah. for fuck's sake, people don't write songs like yes, that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But Paul is so guileless about the way he composes. I've never seen anyone like that. I mean, I don't know why I would see many people like that, but for mm. me, songwriting seems such a kind of private endeavor, but for him, it's this kind of performative thing. Yeah. He can't yeah, yeah. help, like, he can't help write songs. He just sits down and mm. piano, and they just come out, you know. It's, and when he turns up, he's got so many, and he sort of, in a slightly barbed way, he says to John, like, have you only come with, like, two mm, songs or whatever? Yeah. He's like, I work best when my back's against the wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's the amount of stuff that, yeah. especially when things aren't going so well and he just sits down and plays, you know, things that are going to be on, you know, albums, two or three albums yeah, yeah. in the future. Yeah. Another day you know, is just, one of the ones It's pouring out of him. Mm-hmm. And then once the dynamic gets all nice again, and they go into sort of creative overdrive, that is when the foot really goes down on the gas and you start mm. seeing some real magic. And mm. once they um, get into Savile Row and things start to click, 
you can see everyone getting excited about it, mm-hmm. including sort of George Martin. And it's a bit where George Martin says to George, it's like, you know, just everyone looks so happy. It's so good to see you all you yeah. know, bouncing off each other again. And you can <laughs> see he's so, it would have been a mistake to have gone and all of this stuff. And mm. yeah, it's just, it's an absolutely, it, it was, it will fundamentally change my relationship with the band. Mm. I really believe that. Because it's just so, you've seen them in such a different light. And I think the overarching thing for me was just, I absolutely fell in love with John again. Mm. In a Mm. way that I haven't for, you know, sort of 10 years. He's just such a, there's nothing sort of abrasive about him in in this film. There's nothing Mm. sort of spiky. He's really, matter of fact, he's actually the most self-aware and diplomatic one Mm. where when when Paul is getting a bit sort of bolshy and annoying, he's the one who sort of calms things down and he's brutally honest and, you know, and you could just, he just feels like the most mature one in the room, which Mm. I would have guessed from what I knew about those sessions that, you know, his heart wasn't really in it, but you know, he's, he's as desperate to make it work Mm. as, as Paul is. Yeah. And he is in love with the Beatles as much as Paul is. And, you know, these are all sort of cliches that Paul has said, you know, is the beauty of this film, but it really, really comes across. Mm. And, um, yeah, it made me, I got quite emotional watching it. I knew I would. (laughs) It's Mm. no surprise to anyone, Mm. but, um, just watching him and the, the moments where, because they're kind of semi-aware there's a camera there. Yeah. But the, the moments that him and Paul get together and they're just sort of... Even the way that they diffuse an argument is mm. done in a way that you can only do with a family member or someone that you've known mm. for such a long time because they're they're sort of tacitly apologising to each other without saying the words and yeah. they just have this complete unspoken connection and sort of knowing what happened after that, it's just, I find it absolutely, it's so, so heartbreaking, mm-hmm. um, especially because we've seen Paul in the flesh talk about that and stuff recently. But my, so far, I've got a couple of hours left to go, but um, I think it's going to, it's sort of as, as important as the anthology is going to be. Yeah. Sort of level be. of importance. For a generation. Yeah, for sure. Do you think there will be people who think it's kind of, taken some of the magic away by seeing them this up close i would have said that mm. uh when i was one episode in right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i'm saying that just because i'm <laughs> one episode ahead of you but i really um when i watched finished part one and we should say that they're very keen to stress for these early reviews that we don't interview in parts so sorry mm. we had kind of have done that yeah. <laughs> but um you know you have to they, they want to think of it as one big project yeah yeah and um you know, I did feel after the first act, shall we call it, mm. very sort of deflated and emotionally kind of exhausted mm. and like, oh, I don't know if I really wanted to see that. It's like, you know, parents or couples that have split up, you don't want to be in the kitchen with them when it's happening. you got to, as well, and it's a point Ian McDonald makes, is they were almost surprised by how bad it sounded in Twickenham. As in, they're not playing together brilliantly at the start, you know, and yeah. you know, and some of Paul's ideas, like when they're doing "Don't Let Me Down," you know, and they're doing this middle, they're working on the bridge, and Paul's suggesting these backing vocals and just really steamrolling it, and it's like, 
Paul, that's such a shit idea. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously they don't end up doing it, but you can see, yeah. you know, that it's not quite... And he's a, desperately trying to wrestle c- control and, yeah. like, and it's anything productive from these sessions that everyone can see as a fucking nightmare. And to mm. be fair, George is the one who's like, there's nothing good is going to come of this. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah, see yeah. you around the clubs. <laughs> see you around the clubs, yeah. I mean, yeah, but obviously, yeah, I'm coming from it from the perspective of yeah. just that, you know, act one so yeah yeah but um yeah I, I would say all of that sort of dissipated when you see as i see when the when billy preston and the rosewood telly turn up and yeah. you know george's one background it just becomes the documentary it was meant to be mm. i think we've probably said enough for now sure yeah i mean we've got another episode coming up next week so we'll probably chat about it a bit more but i think maybe around christmas we'll do an episode where we talk about it more at length because we've had time to digest it you know what do you think, Jack? Yeah, I think so. It's going <laughs> yeah. to be, it's definitely going to be one I'm already looking forward to watching again. So um, it sounds good to me. But um, yeah, so we won't keep you any longer in this extended episode. But if you fast forwarded, you can stop fast forwarding now because <laughs> it's time for Adam Buxton's Personal Beatles. <laughs> so this week, Robin and I are absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast. Adam Buxton. Hi, Adam. How you hey, doing? hello, Jack. Hi, Robin. Hello. All well? Good to meet you guys. All's well. Thank you. Yes, I'm very happy to be here. I'm alive. Uh, all the members of my family are currently alive. And um, my dog, uh, Rosie, is in good shape. So yes. nothing to complain Amazing. about. Amazing. You're obviously a massive music fan and a big Beatles man. Um, but where does your sort of, we both read your book um, and there's loads of stuff about your sort of formative musical experience in, in that. But the Beatles are kind of not really mentioned in there, but has it always been a bit of a constant for you? I think so. I think Bowie kind of dominated my musical enthusiasms when I was younger and I felt as if I was the most, um, I was the biggest Bowie fan in the room. Whereas my best friend, one of my best friends, Patrick Dickey, mm. when we were young, he was one of the first people that I knew who was a passionate music fan. And he was uber Beatles nerd. Yeah. In a way that was quite intimidating. I didn't know anyone else who was that passionate about music. And in the book, you talk about he, you were 10 when John Lennon was murdered. Yeah. And Patrick was profoundly affected by it and you almost couldn't believe his reaction is that was that right yeah big style we were at boarding school together at that point and i remember being in the dormitory and it was quite a big dormitory so about 30 or 40 boys up there and uh yeah someone and it was the day that john lennon had been shot and everyone was talking about it uh evidently there were a few people who were beatles fans but they were also the sport fans, right? So that was <laughs> yeah. a world that I wasn't even part of. I just thought, oh, those guys play football. So I'm, mm. I don't care about anything that they're into, including the Beatles, whoever they are. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I think I knew who the Beatles were by that point, sort of, but not really. And I did not know that John Lennon was one of the Beatles even. So when right. they were all talking about this guy who'd been shot, oh, Lennon's been shot. Oh, my God. And my friend... Patrick, actually, we weren't friends at that point, but Patrick was, I think, maybe even crying. And um, it was weird because he was kind of a hard guy 
he was tough and he was intelligent and into sport and basically the opposite of me. And um, it was strange to see him so upset. And I just said, like, what is the big deal about this um, hippie dying? Like, who cares, really? And so he went absolutely nuts and had to be restrained by some of the other sport guys. <laughs> but I really didn't get it. And I had, yeah. I, I have a clear memory of thinking then, but not having the terminology, that it was very performative. You know, right. I just mm. thought, this is, this, these guys are signaling. This is, there's a lot of signaling going on here. And I don't know, this is bullshit. You know what I mean? They're 10. They don't know who John Lennon was. And why do they care if he's been shot? You know, like, right. if, if, uh, who would, who would have upset me if they'd been shot? I don't know, Russ Abbott. But, uh... <laughs> so you're saying it was like the kind of 1980 equivalent of people saying, God, I can't believe this happened. I was in Paris six months ago. You yeah, know, that kind yeah, of thing yeah. after that. Trying to, uh, people... just, the, just the idea that you would be so personally affected by someone you'd never met. A right. bit like all the, and there's always people who still feel like that. You know, after Bowie died and there was an outpouring of grief on the internet, mm. there was also a strong backlash from certain quarters saying, get over yourselves, you know, who cares? You never met the guy. Mm. This is pathetic. You know, yeah. grow a pair, etc., etc. <laughs> and, um... There's, I think I was in that camp when Lennon was killed, I'm, I'm right. sad to say. When, when Bowie yeah. died, though, did you get a bit um, grief-possessive with people who were quite performative? <laughs> when, when he died, because there seemed to be a big thing about, you, did, you didn't love him like I loved him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really, because I've never been one of those guys. I mean, I felt, uh, I felt a kinship with people who were upset, uh, I stayed away mm. from some of the more performatively grief-stricken ones, but there were lots of people on there sharing stories about Bowie that I found very comforting because my dad had died five weeks before as well. Mm. So I was still in that morbid zone. And then when Bowie died, it, it kind of gave a bit of shape to some of the feelings I hadn't been able to express about my dad. And then reading people's recollections of encounters they'd had with Bowie sharing clips of strange things that he'd done on TV interviews that I'd never seen before. I found that tremendously comforting mm. um, to see other people's perspectives, you know. Yeah, I remember that. I think two of the photos that were kind of side by side on my social media, one was Pat Metheny, the jazz guitarist, mm. who recorded a song with David Bowie. And the, the next one was Tricky. And it's oh, like yeah. you couldn't think of two more different people. And that kind of seemed to sum up the kind of range of his influence and connections and things. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everyone had <laughs> lots of strange little stories. But then yeah. for me, Beatles-wise, Patrick never converted me. He, I think, realized that I uh, was resistant to the whole thing. And actually, he was a big Bowie fan as well. So we bonded over Bowie. Mm. But then earlier than that, I'd been exposed to the Beatles as just this kind of enjoyably strange anomalous cultural phenomenon via my parents mm -hmm. in the early 70s because my parents were friends with these people who were a bit more trendy than they were both my mum and dad were quite conservative in almost every way um but my mum was about 15 years younger than my dad so 
they uh, so she was a bit more open minded. And when we went to stay with these people in Scotland, they were a bit groovy and a bit younger than my dad. But my dad wanted to impress them because they were quite posh. And um, it was a world that my dad was keen to be a part of. And um, they played Sergeant Pepper in the uh, lounge while the kids fooled around and they had a playroom. I'd never been to a house with a playroom, like a dedicated playroom. And it was a big old room as well. And they had mousetrap. I'd never seen mousetrap before the game. Mm, so I was nice. trying to assemble mousetrap. And then I every now and again would wander in to see what mum and dad were doing in the big room. And everyone was smoking and drinking booze, even though it was the afternoon and laughing and laughing. And the soundtrack was Sergeant Pepper. And I'd never heard grown-ups playing that kind of music before. My dad and my dad was a Wagner guy. Uh, you know, if it was party time for my dad, then maybe you get a bit of Glenn Miller or, um, or maybe Ella Fitzgerald, you know, that's mm, about as groovy yeah. as my dad got. Um, mum, Mum was more of a pop fan and she'd liked the Beatles when she was younger, but never really got a chance to play them at home, I don't think, because my dad sort of dominated the stereo. And uh, and to hear that music was so interesting to me that, that grown like grown-ups listen to this. Wow. And Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds made a big impression because I just thought, mm. this is fun. This is like fun music. It's easily likable it's not a nursery rhyme but it has elements that are uh, you know it has elements in common with kind of nursery rhymes but it's weird and interesting and then i remember looking at the cover of sergeant pepper and being intrigued by that as well and then later on in the 70s it was the christmas screenings of the beatles movies mm -hmm. that i think were always on bbc2 weren't they or is that just my imagination throughout the 70s christmas tv was characterized by screenings of bond movies and uh this is late 70s i guess early 80s mm -hmm. and beatles movies and i have clear memories of, of watching some of the beatles movies with my mum and feeling christmasy and excited and also just thinking that it was uh yeah, again, a weird kind of anomaly in, in the culture because they were funny and mm. they were weird. And in those days, there was quite a clear delineation, as far as I was concerned anyway, between straight grown-up culture, the news, um, grown-up programs, things like that, all of which were more or less totally devoid of humor. And mm. then there was comedy, sitcoms, etc. Are you being served? etc things like that you know <laughs> it ain't half hot mum mm. totally beyond the pale um mm. things that you couldn't watch now um <laughs> that we used to watch and laugh away at and that my mum liked but never the twain would meet you know what i mean mm -hmm. like yeah. you have to keep it separate you can't suddenly have like a fun bit in the news or something like that <laughs> but then the beatles were like somewhere in between because they weren't comedians and they weren't straights. They were just these weird guys who had a twinkle in their eye. And I like that deadpan delivery. You didn't really get that deadpan comic delivery anywhere else that I was aware of. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was fond of them almost instantly. And then when it's yeah. paired with 
animation and things like on uh, Yellow Submarine. It was like, yep, I'm on board, love it. And Nowhere mm. Man was the was the song that really got me. Yeah. I didn't like, I mean, I liked Eleanor Rigby. It was obviously good, but it was a bit too dark and frightening. Yeah. And it was a, right. a vision of something that my parents had always tried to protect me from, which was the grimness of the adult world, the, the real world. <laughs> mm. Like the idea yeah. that life could be lonely and hopeless and and you would be no one would miss you when you were gone you know and all this kind of stuff it was like oh fuck yeah. <laughs> i don't like the sound of that but nowhere man was a more palatable version of that yeah, yeah. <laughs> slightly more upbeat yeah in, i mean in the ramble book you, you talk i mean so much of it's based on music and the popular culture at the time do you do you remember how i'm sort of really interested in this we ask guests a lot about this but mm. can you remember how how the Beatles were thought of in the eighties, you know, like whether they were cool or whether they were uncool yeah. or whether. You know. I don't know what other people thought. I guess my impression of them was filtered through my friend Patrick, and he mm. and his brother were mega fans. Um, so, to me, they just seemed like old people music. Mm. Mm. And um, I just thought, well, this is stuff from another age. I was into everything that was in the charts at that point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Gary Newman and uh, Depeche Mode. And I liked Kraftwerk as well, who had a hit mm -hmm. with um, the model and computer love around that time. So I liked all that stuff. And I liked electronic sounds mm -hmm. and synthesizers. And I didn't hear any of that in the Beatles. And I didn't really like guitar music that much at that point. Yeah. Um, but then I do remember... Uh, stars on 45. Do you remember that? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it was a weird <laughs> blip in chart history where some, yeah. I don't know what it was. It's like a, a, a time at which you were allowed to chop up original versions. I think I'm right in saying, aren't I? Hello, Jack from the future here. Just to clear up that the Dutch novelty act Stars on 45's Beatles medley that hit the charts in 1981 was in fact recorded with sound alikes. John Lennon's parts were sung by Baz Moyes of the 1970s Dutch pop group Smile, whereas Paul McCartney and George Harrison's parts were sung by Sandy Coast. Back to the podcast. It was a, the original Beatles songs chopped up and then married to a beat, like a sort of disco beat almost. <laughs> and it was a compilation of all like brilliant Beatles songs to this disco beat. I don't know. Was that an was that an official Apple product? It must have been, right, to license those tracks. I don't think so. I think it was probably sort of a prototype Paul's boutique type mashup thing before. <laughs> That's very generous to compare <laughs> That's it to very, Paul's very boutique. Generous. But you know, in the same way that Paul's boutique, they never cleared any of those Beatles samples because people right. had yeah. never really thought about that as being. A thing. I mean, it's. I guess Jive Bunny. Pretty. I remember Jive Bunny. I think I was a bit young for Stars of Forty Five. Yeah. But Jive Bunny must have been a similar thing, where maybe you're just using such small clips of the songs. That I mean, it's. I haven't listened to it recently, so it's possible that they were soundalikes. Because right. I do remember yeah. that they were joined together by not the Beatles singing yeah. those stars on 45 <laughs> we got to keep those songs alive like we can work it out so come on twist and shout and all this kind of thing you know it was like a yeah. song about how great the beatles were
But anyway, I liked it and I thought, yep, up for that. That sounds pretty good. I like those little snatches of songs. And then maybe I'm, I'm probably twisting all this up. But soon afterwards, maybe even off the back of the success of those, they started re-releasing the early Beatles singles. And I remember listening to Radio One one afternoon and uh, they played... You know, the, the the first one. What's it called? Love Me Do. Love Me Do. Love oh. Me Do. <laughs> and it sounded like a, a, a it sounded so old mm. that it was yeah. cool. It was like, wow, that's a funny gimmick. Who made this? Cave people? <laughs> <laughs> it's ancient and it's got all these funny, weird non-synthesizer sounds. And it just sounded yeah. so basic. Yeah, yeah, that it was quite catchy to me. It sounded a bit like Trio, who did a song called "Da Da Da." Do you remember that? Da da da, do 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 do, da da da. these german guys and they had a little casio vl tone and and did a very basic beat on it and did this super stripped down song and to me that's what um love me do sounded like <laughs> mm. yeah. but i liked it so the general consensus now and and the way that you know people like rog rob sheffield write about it or whatever um is that the 80s they were kind of at their reputational nadir mm-hmm. and that they, there was something I guess almost kitsch about them, I suppose. Yeah, and probably what fueled the kind of quite knee-jerky reactions to a lot of Paul's kind of eighties stuff. So their their cultural currency was at an all-time low, which is very. I, mean, I feel at the moment we're very much in a peak, and it kind of goes up and down. But uh, yeah, no, that's interesting that it was sort of because when I first got into, I remember th- hearing synthesized on Abbey Road and thinking. I can't believe there were synthesizers in mm. that era. So you've got the Moog on, you've got that white noise wash on I Want mm. You, She's So Heavy. Mm. Where else have you got synthesizers there? The Here Comes the Sun. Oh, um, yeah. Something, yeah. That's very Moogie. Yeah. And um, um, Maxwell Silverhammer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did he have a Beatles phase? I mean, one of your podcasts that, where you talk to Louis Theroux um, mm. and you play your fantastic version of How Do You Sleep, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you talk about, like, the Beatles kind of being something you got into kind of as a teenager, then maybe a bit later. Did you have a kind of phase when you got into them? Yes, kind of I did, we, yeah. Went through all the albums and everything. Yeah, I think maybe I'd run out of Bowie. Mm. And... Right. <laughs> I was about 18. So after I left school, I I don't think I was ever properly into them when we were at school. It was just Bowie and The Doors and then and then quite quickly segued to Pixies and things like that Mm -hmm. towards the end of the 80s. 
But then I can't remember what it was that clicked. Um, but I think one of the first records I got might have been the White Album. When I was working in a restaurant, I was a busboy clearing tables in a pizza restaurant. And it was the first job I'd ever had. And I was suddenly exposed to all kinds of different influences and people from different backgrounds and different ages and races. And it was great. I really loved it. Like before then, I'd just been in, um, you know, everyone had been like me, more or less, in the schools that I'd been to. But um, I really, really liked being in this different environment. But I kind of went a bit nuts, I think. And I started, I started drinking booze really, really in earnest. <laughs> and, um, and I started going out with a, a server at the restaurant who was quite a bit older than me and who I'm pretty sure had a drink problem now that I look back on it. Mm. And, um, and it was quite a fraught, uh, <laughs> it was quite a fraught relationship it was, um, yeah, it was a weird chapter in my life, uh, mm. very intense. And the soundtrack to those months was the Beatles, was getting into the Beatles and kind of buying a new Beatles LP more or less every couple of weeks and blazing mm. through it. And the one I really remember, though, was the White Album. That was the soundtrack to the darkest part of that period. Right. Um, when I really felt like I was losing my shit. And that music uh, almost, I don't know, it, it was, it, it seemed to sum up where I was, like, especially um, happiness is a warm gun. Mm, mm. I almost get flashbacks when I hear that still. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just sitting on a park bench in the middle of the night, just thinking, what the fuck is going on? And... Um, <laughs> You know, the whole, I need a fix because I'm going down. That section mm -hmm. really, really evokes a strong feeling of madness and worry right. Yeah, for me. I need a fix because I'm going down, down to the bits that I left uptown. I need a fix because I'm going down. It's quite scary, scary stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really dark. But I didn't really... And also, I didn't really like the rest of the record. Like, there was lots of good stuff on there. I loved that. And I loved Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. That mm. cheered me up. Like, that was a funny one. I re uh, uh, The bit at the end, when they just freak out... What are they doing? They're hitting cowbells there or something? It's the ringing yeah. a bell. It's, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, this is ringing a bell, but they, I think they were <laughs> ringing a bell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a fire alarm or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just imagine them all hanging off the back of a fire engine and <laughs> yeah. hammering on the, like Trumpton, bashing this <laughs> yeah. bell. And it really made me laugh. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty funny stuff. But I, I really liked the early ones, though, the early records. And I think probably like a lot of people ended up listening most to Rubber Soul. Mm -hmm. um, like I like I liked Revolver. That was definitely good and much more like an indie record. I mean, it was almost indistinguishable from a lot of the indie music that I was listening to mm. at the time. Uh, the modern, you know, Pixies stuff. It to me, it it felt mm. of a piece, yeah, and not dated in any way. 
but Rubber Soul sounded a bit older, but just the songs were so good. Every yeah. single one, it was like, yep, this is good. And also, they were quite easy to sing along with, you know. And you didn't, it, it wasn't um, totally impossible to make a decent fist of, of singing along with them and sounding quite good. And hmm. um, I, I loved every single song on that one. And I remember we, we me and Joe Cornish um, used to do a thing on our TV show called Vinyl Justice and we'd go around to people's houses and look through their record collections and yeah. pick out the most embarrassing ones and tease them. And we went, to, we were in Los Angeles doing a couple and we went around to Ray Manzarek's house, yeah. speaking of the Doors, Doors keyboard player when he was alive. And uh, I remember him, he didn't really have too many really embarrassing records. Earth, Wind and Fire and Axis Boulder's Love, I remember from that one. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah. holy that shit. Was a, I, I, was a, I was big, big. Adam and Joe fan when I was oh wow yeah, that's cool at the, hey, at thanks. the first video and that was my <laughs> particularly favorite because I used to have a picture a poster of Axis Bolded Love and every time I looked at it it would remind me of Ray Manzarek going like final man <laughs> whatever he says wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's cool that you remember which records he has and you remember accurately because he only had cool records I mean mm. he just had sort of great records from the 60s yeah. kind of thing there was no, you know, we we were always hoping to find the Chuckle Brothers or whoever the equivalent yeah. was. <laughs> I remember, was it Frank Black just had Buzzcocks, like just hundreds of Buzzcocks CDs? It was all, virtually the whole thing he had, wasn't it? He, well, he had a little, a very neat little wallet of um, a, a very good music. I mean, he had Donovan and mm. he had a lot of Ramones um and uh yeah buzzcocks things like that but ray manzarek he was it was all classic 60s rock mm. and we were thinking god this is gonna be a boring one and also he was quite <laughs> he was a little bit tricky and kept on correcting us on the pronunciation of his name and things like that <laughs> it's right manzarek 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 Man no manzarek manzarek man no not manzarek manzarek Ma that's what we said manzarek <laughs> anyway i've got a beatles album i've got one of the uh, i've got the, one of the uh, the original sergeant peppers i think you got it up there if, if i remember uh, correctly i could find from, the goddamn thing uh, you got rubber soul here your rubber soul there Oops, you go sorry. oh this ah let me tell you about this one <laughs> this is the one yeah when I realized that the Beatles, see, when the Beatles first came out, this is before your time, you chaps are quite young, so you probably don't know this, but the Beatles were a teeny bopper band. Yeah, yeah. They were considered, you know, kind of for teenage girls, yeah. you know. She loves you, yeah, yeah. I mean, quite frankly, it wasn't Miles Davis or nah. John Coltrane. And then I saw this album cover. Yeah. And I happened to be myself on a psychedelic substance. While you saw it? The first time you the saw it? The first time somebody showed it to me. They said we went over to someone's house and I'm just going, whoa, I'm doing a Jim Morrison thing. Yeah. Whoa. See, we did do that on, whoa, that thing. We'll right. do, do the Morrison, do the Val Kilmer. We did that on acid. And they said, hey, we've got the new Beatles album. And I said, oh, new Beatles album, man, let me see it. And they showed me this and I went, Boing. because you could look into their eyes, John Lennon looking at you, and you knew that this was no longer a child. These weren't teeny boppers. These weren't guys making music for teeny boppers. These fellows had all ingested 
LSD. I knew it. I looked at them and I said, these are now acid heads. And turned the record over and started looking at some of the uh, songs. I've just seen a face, of course. And I'm looking through you. When I heard I'm looking through you, right. LSD, I'm looking through you. Where did you go? I thought I knew you, etc., etc., etc. What et did I know? And girl, did you, when you first heard girl, did you hear the hidden... Uh, dirty references to, no. to tits. No, I, I, I can't say that I did. You can hear it in the backing vocals are going tit, 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 tit. Well, you know who that is. That's, that's this guy. Yeah, that, exactly. That's Lennon. That's, exactly. that's Lennon, the sex maniac. Yeah. Did you ever bump into the Beatles I'm on your travels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul's, uh, Paul's a nice chap, and George is very spiritual, and Ringo's very funny, and uh, um, John was uh, an absolute great wit. What an intellectual. I I, he, he was fantastic. So there's our fantastic rubber sole. Yeah, and, uh, that's, that's pretty legal. There's nothing problematic on there. It is so great, that record. Nowhere Man is on there, isn't it? So mm, I loved yeah. Nowhere Man. If I Needed Someone, what might be one of my favorite Beatles songs, mm. I think. Um, Drive My Car is a hoot. In My Life, of course, is agonizingly poignant and brilliant, even after. Who did the version on the... Uh, crappy album with the, you know the one with um was that even oh, robin williams sh- who did in my life on that record i think he did come together um robin williams oh yeah oh no i tell you who did in my life sean connery oh oh yes <laughs> oh, yeah God. it's like a sort of um yeah yeah william shatner-esque kind of exactly right thing yeah mm. there are places i remember <laughs> all my life though some have changed some forever <laughs> Not for better. Some have gone, but some remain. It was like that. Yeah, it's definitely a one, a one take reading of it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I go now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As a massive Doors fan, was were you quite intimidated about meeting a hero? You know, uh, I was not. I was not too intimidated by Ray because I never had that kind of personal identification with the Doors at all. It was always about the music. You know, there's certain bits of music that I I never really cared about the people who were making it. I thought Morrison was interesting, but he seemed like a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> and the people who used to really love him were just massive bellends. Yeah. Um, and you know they 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 would there's always a guy who would carry around a copy of no one here gets out alive and just shit on about 
Jim and think that think that they they clearly thought they were a bit like Jim Morrison and they were all kind mm. of uh, you know they'd sort of drawl a lot and stare off into the distance and um, refuse to tuck their shirts in <laughs> and um, I thought that they were posers but I loved the music uh, Van Morrison similarly um, clearly he was not someone that wanted to be friends with you and if you had any sense you you didn't want to be friends with him either but the music <laughs> was like oh my god this this is amazing mm. i love it mm -hmm. uh so i wasn't too worried about ray manzarek i was pretty nervous to meet frank black because i was a big pixies fan by that point and he was a yeah. little more my age and also he was still the pixies had broken up by that point they haven't they hadn't reformed but um i loved his solo stuff as well so i was mm. definitely nervous when i met frank black and how did it come about when your dad did the video oh yeah that was amazing so after we'd done vinyl justice with frank black he got in touch via his then manager a guy called ken goes who was uh he used to manage the pixies as well and he was old school hard ass i believe is the phrase he was tough <laughs> mm. and um he didn't take any shit. And so he very charmlessly inquired as to whether we'd be interested in making a music video for Frank Black and the Catholics track Dog Gone because they were touring and Frank wasn't into being in the video. Um, so he said, like, yeah, do you want to do a video? There's no money. Um, Frank says that, uh, well, Charles is his real name. Charles, Charles said that uh, maybe you'd do it. So we're like, yeah, sure, great. And um, Joe came up with the idea of, well, originally the idea was that Frank Black would be like E.T. in a shed and um, we'd be trying to get him out of the shed by feeding him Smarties. And uh, it was quite a nice idea anyway, but we found out that Frank Black wasn't available. He's on tour. So instead we thought, okay, let's use my dad. And uh, who was then in his mid 70s, maybe late 70s even, but he was always up for helping us out with anything. And he was part of the show, um, the Adam and Joe show. So we got him to be like a um, sort of crazy old street preacher guy, the kind of person that you still see outside uh, Brixton Tube and um, places like that, you know. And he had a sandwich board that we made for him saying, um, the end is nigh and uh, I am here on one side and the end is nigh on the other side. I am here was one of the lyrics from the track mm. and we got him to go around London like handing out flyers with Frank Black's face on them to people in the street in between lip syncing with some of the words to the song. And we did it guerrilla style, you know, like mm. just um, going up to random people, some of whom quite were quite rude. <laughs> And told my dad to fuck off. Oh, um, but then other others were really sweet. Yeah. And um, like buskers and people out on the streets, maybe homeless people and mm. some people outside um, Brixton Tube. And we got some really lovely reactions to my dad. And uh, it worked out great. And I think Charles Frank Black was, was really pleased with it because he liked my dad. Yeah. They met once and they 
spent a few, uh, they spent an hour or so, like we were filming them for the show because we thought, well, for me, it was just an opportunity to meet Frank Black. Yeah. And we were thinking, well, maybe this will be a new segment for my dad. Like he interviews indie mm. rock legends, but it didn't really work out. In the end, they just chatted about um, cognac and <laughs> their favorite roads in France. And it was a bit too Daily Telegraph, really. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, your dad's such. I mean, he's. I was such a big fan of Bad Dad and everything. And, and you talked a bit there about earlier about him listening to Sergeant Pepper. He was a slightly older generation to the Beatles. So did he kind of think of them yeah. in the same kind of critical way that he did modern acts like Radiohead that he reviewed on the show, or did he recognise how good the Beatles were? You know, despite being a bit older. No, he thought it was all crap. Right. He okay. thought it was. All absolute crap. Really? They were, um, you know, they were long-haired yobs as far as he was concerned. Yeah. He bundled them in with everybody else. Yeah. He didn't see the charm in them. He wasn't interested in the songs because to him it was like, it's those druggy weirdos. Right. They are, they're the, um, you know, the figureheads of a culture that has become totally corrupted and... Um, it's the end of civilization, as far <laughs> wow. as he was concerned. Absolutely no redeeming features at all. The, the, the trumpet no, solo on not Penny really. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. He, you know, like occasionally, I re- I've got a couple of memories of him really struggling to be positive about things that I loved. Yeah. Um, like Bowie, and uh, but he just couldn't manage it. Mm. Like he came in one day, and I was listening to Transformer, and I must have been about. 10 or 11 or something i was in my room and i just got transformer i loved it by lou reed that is and i was drawing a picture of i was copying the cover of transformer Mm. and um then i wrote at the bottom i thought i'm going to give this a title this brilliant artwork and i uh, I wrote at the bottom uh lou reed vicious that was the title of my portrait (laughs) and then my dad came in and he looked at the picture and he said, oh, that's, very, that's a very, very good picture of a very creepy looking man. <laughs> very, what does Lou Reed Vicious mean? I said, well, is Lou, he, the guy is called Lou Reed and he's got a song called Vicious. And to my dad, it just didn't make any sense. Like, why would you do a song called Vicious? Music <laughs> is supposed to be uplifting mm. and edifying. It's yeah. supposed to appeal to the higher emotions. Yeah. Why would you want to drag everything down into the gutter and celebrate an entirely negative feeling, uh, a, a negative quality, like being vicious? <laughs> And he said, oh, it's all very sinister and just left the room. <laughs> That's so funny because yeah. I'm so interested in my dad's, my dad's uh, no longer with us, but he was, he was born in 1945 and loved the Beatles. But it, it's just anything, any records post-1970, he just didn't get pop and so <laughs> like Bowie, you know, glam, punk just absolutely not for him. <laughs> so, yeah. and it's so weird because you sort of, sort of try and think, well, punk was just a bit like rock and roll, really. It's yeah. just, but like you know, it's just it, it it didn't work for him. It's kind of really interesting. I was always interested mm. in in that. Whereas the Beatles were, he could fit them in. You know, he could see how good the songs were and how there were elements of folk and elements mm. of classical music to, that he could respond to. But it was a really interesting generational divide. I yeah. Think. My mum, my mum's the same actually. Yeah. My mum's sub my dad's probably somewhere in between. He's nineteen forty one and he has yeah. a begrudging appreciation for the Beatles, 
but he cannot abide anything that I grew up listening to. His thing was always right. like, but you can't whistle it, can you? <laughs> it's like, well, maybe that's not shouldn't yeah. be the seal of approval for. Yeah, it's so short sighted, though. I, that's the thing I always think with my dad is like, you're a clever guy. He's way more well read and intelligent and and lived a more interesting life than I certainly have up to this point. And yet he just couldn't see past the haircuts mm. and the and the sound, the general sound. It just repelled him. And it was like, mate, you like Glenn Miller. <laughs> yeah. This is Glenn Miller. It's just different yeah. different instrumentation. You know, the, it's, yeah. you're into the songs, right? The tunes. And the other weird thing as well is that, I don't know about your fathers, but my dad could listen to some pretty heavy-going classical music when he wanted to. Right. Like, you know, War Requiem by Benjamin Britten or whatever. <laughs> and that's like, that's not an easy, easy listen, you know. It's that anti-establishment thing, I think, that was for, for mm, my dad. He, yeah. he, he similarly couldn't overcome it. But, you know, he mm. loved the sort of, he, he was a big, you know, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Glenn Miller. Right. Mm. And he but he always liked the sort of edgy, you know, his favorite song ever is Caravan, which is one of the more sort of, you know, discordant Ellington tracks. And it's actually like oh, right. really weird. You could see it as being a real precursor to sort of like bebop and something, but there's a very right, very fine line. He likes sort of mm. Dizzy Gillespie. Anything after that is like stupid nonsense. <laughs> mm. So I think it has a yeah. lot to do with just what what age you are and what you're sort of cut off point yeah yeah that's that's the thing isn't it it's such a big part of music is the emotional associations Mm. and it's very difficult to be objective sometimes but talking about the generational thing i mean You've talked on your podcast and written about it. Kind of, you've got a teenage son, and you've kind of introduced. You've talked a lot about kind of being in the car with him and introducing him to songs and music and things. And one of those was, you know, I want you. She's so heavy and everything. And oh, you yeah. said now that he's a huge Beatles fan. So how how does that how do, how does it work for sort of being the father figure? Uh, well, the uh, father figure, the father, <laughs> the father. <laughs> um, well, it is great in some ways that was a that was a real watershed moment and in fact um he even mentioned it out of the blue the other day when we were talking about the beatles he was like oh yeah do you remember when you played me that song i always remember that it was like uh it was a real moment we both knew this is the baton is being handed across to the, the uh, another generation there's part of me that feels a bit guilty because i sort of think my job as a dad is just to cut ties and let them go and off you go you make your own life you you find your own influences but at the same time a big part of what made me uh, want to be a father was was like communing with them and and enthusing with them about some of this stuff mm. so it is really gratifying i mean i think he's pretty good actually he's into you know he he spent ages and ages listening to modern stuff and um he loves mf doom and tyler the creator and all that stuff but he's going through a jag at the moment of uh, going quite retro a lot of doors and actually i think i want you she's so heavy was was one of the first beatles songs he heard and i and it was so great listening to it 
in the car and we cranked it up really loud and he'd never heard anything like that with that long long coda mm. um that repeating riff that gets more and more intense and then the white noise and then suddenly the cut off mm -hmm. at the end of it i mean it's such an amazing piece of music mm. i think mm. And so far ahead of its time, I yeah, think, when it yeah. was made. That's, that's like noise rock, you know, and mm -hmm. there's everything in there. There's the old, there's like history, there's the blues, and then there's, there's a window onto the future and kind of weird abstract musical expressionism mm -hmm. and fucking hell, it's amazing. And, and he got it, you know, and mm -hmm. it was so exciting being there in the car when he heard it for the first time and he got it and he was like, wow, that was great. And he's not... No disrespect to him. I love him very much, but he's not the most expressive guy. And, um, but after that, he was like, wow. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. Wow. So it was good. Oh, it was so a great cool. moment. Have you heard the version on, um, that th they did at Trident? Maybe I have. It's, it's like, it goes on even longer and it gets even more mad and Billy Preston oh. really leans into it. Mm -hmm. And the Hammond playing on it and stuff is absolutely incredible. I've heard one where there's some amazing Hammond stuff. Maybe that's yeah. the one. I also heard a little outtake, a studio outtake with someone coming into the room and saying, um, would it be a problem if you just turned it down a little bit for the <laughs> yeah, next take? The same, there's there's been one, a yeah. complaint. Yeah. <laughs> a complaint. Amazing. My boys are ready to go. John? Yes? What? Is it possible without affecting yourselves too much to turn down a little? Apparently there's been a complaint. From who? From somebody outside the building. What are they doing here at this time of night? Oh, we'll try it once more, at the very loud. And then if we don't get it, we'll try it quiet like it might do it the other way. Okay. The loud one, last go. Last chance to be loud. One, two, three, one, two, three. We've got to ask you about um, interviewing Paul a couple of years ago, and I'm sure every single one of our listeners would have heard that interview. Um, and it was incredible. It, it comes up a lot on this podcast. Um, and because it's it's a side of him that I, I think you managed to get out of him that's quite rarely seen of him mm. sort of guard, guard down and not being too performative and yeah it's it's a, such an amazing interview but mm. how what was it like the how did it come about and what was the sort of emotional build-up to it yes I mean it, it was a weird one because um I was in touch with the PR company that he employs who are called Doorbell. Mm. And um, I think they're quite good and innovative in that they have slightly counterintuitive strategies for someone like him. Because for ages and ages, the Beatles were just sort of in aspic. You know what I mean? Mm. And you didn't really hear their songs that much. And there was a real danger that a whole generation were just not going to know about the Beatles. Even now, when you go on Spotify... The top Beatles songs on there, what are they? I think it's weirdly, I think it's Here Comes the Sun. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And Here Comes the Sun, 
Number one, let it be. Number two, come together. Number three, yesterday. Number four, hey Jude. Number five. Mm. Now look, I don't want to start a fight. <laughs> They're all great songs. None of them are my favourite Beatles songs. Mm. I think that's. I think that's swayed by by Abbey Road. Was it was just it was a huge, huge seller in America. Right there, you go. Oh, but even that is not. It, it's not past the billion. Uh, you're still, here comes the sun is still on 729 million. So that's, it's respectable. (laughs) They're going to be happy with that, but, uh, it's not past the billion, which a lot of modern artists are. Anyway, Mm -hmm. they got in touch with me and said, you know, would you ever be up for talking to support? I was like, yes. And, um, that conversation rumbled on for years and years. Oh, right. And it didn't look as if it was going to happen. That dangled the carrot every now and Mm. then when he had a new record or there was a reissue or whatever. But then in the lockdown, it all just clicked and McCartney 3 was announced and uh, they got in touch and sent me an advanced copy and said, look, I think this is going to happen and um, it'll obviously be remote. And actually, I think that probably did me a bit of a favor because Mm. the whole remote thing before that they wouldn't probably have considered it. I think big stars, certainly pre-COVID, avoided all that because the, it's such a shag technically, you know, and there's so many things that can go wrong. And um, anyway, so it all, the stars aligned and suddenly it was like, okay, it's on. And then I was like, oh shit, now I'm actually going to have to talk to this guy. And I was aware that I was stepping into this arena that is sometimes a little crazy with super passionate fans who can get very easily triggered if you say the wrong thing Mm. and i didn't necessarily want to go in there and just be dealing with beetle fury for the next few months if i asked the wrong thing or made it clear that i was a little ignorant (laughs) because i wasn't you know because i'm not a i don't have encyclopedic knowledge of the beatles at all i just think they're good yeah Mm. and certainly don't know every nook and cranny of Sir Paul's career, but it was fine. And I, I, I guess I thought, well, this has just got to be worth a try. Probably what's going to happen is I'll get, you know, I listened to quite a few interviews with him before I talked to him and realized fairly quickly, oh, okay. He's like a stand-up comedian. He's got a, a set of stories mm-hmm. that he tells. He's been asked all these questions a million times. He is you know, aware that there's no, there's nothing to be gained really from being candid at this point, from telling people something that he's never told anyone. Why, why would you, you know, Mm. instead he's just spinning the same stories slightly differently, depending on what situation he's in. And actually the thing that was good for me was getting friends of mine to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a writer friend called Nina Stibby, who sent me a question which was just like, what's his favorite food? <laughs> and it was so, I think it was because it was so banal, yeah. <laughs> but universal. You know, it's the kind of question that they ask in smash hits or whatever. Yeah. You wouldn't ask Paul McCartney, <laughs> what's your favorite food? It's like, that's Paul McCartney. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'll give it a go. I'll just see what he thinks about these questions that some of my friends have sent in. And, you know, Alex Horn asked him a question about, uh, what do you read at night or mm. what do you like? What's the last thing you think about at night? And someone else asked about what TV he was into. And maybe I asked that. I can't remember, but, um, 
those kind of banal questions that maybe you wouldn't think of asking someone like Paul McCartney actually ended up being quite good mm. and, and set him off on a slightly more personal tack than perhaps he would have done otherwise. Yeah. And, it, and, 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 you know, those are universal things, aren't they? So he talked about his um, uh, Marmite and Hummus Bagel, yeah. which was actually a tidbit that I'd got from an NME article I wrote, I read, rather. So it was good when I realized he was up for talking about those things and being fine about it and not rolling his eyes and going, ah, oh, Jesus, who the fuck is this guy mm. that I've got to talk to? Then I started to relax a little bit and enjoy myself. But there were still a lot of questions that I wanted to ask, which I was aware that he probably would have been asked a thousand times, but I just wanted to have them mm. answered on my podcast kind of thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. mm. About obvious stuff like about Paul is dead and about and about his relationship with John. You know, I don't think I got anything that he hasn't said mm. before about that, but it was just amazing hearing him say it to me. Yeah. And also I was very impressed by him. The thing that really struck me was how sanguine he is about the whole business of... Uh, being in the Beatles, being this person whose whole life has been scrutinized to this crazy degree, he, you know, he's lost his privacy, really. He's lost his best friend um, because of crazy fans. He's had a strange life. Obviously, he's had a life that, that has been amazing and exciting in many ways and full of privileges that many of us would only dream of. But also, like, a lot of intense, scary, horrible stuff as well to have that sort of life. And actually, he's really upbeat about it and, and philosophical. And I was impressed as well with him just saying, like, you know, I was asking him mm. what it was like uh, living through times in the 60s that must have felt totally apocalyptic. You know, like, people are, especially in the last couple of years, People always, a lot of people kind of say, oh, well, you know, happy end times kind of thing. Hope you're enjoying the the apocalypse and all this kind of stuff. But then you think like, yeah, all right, there's a lot of grim stuff going on. But does it compare to what it must have been like in the 60s with race riots there that were incredibly vicious and horrible with cops killing um, people on university campuses and brutalizing uh, people of color the entire time in, in, in a sort of uh, totally uh, outrageous way. And, um, and you know, Kennedy being shot and Vietnam and all these people that were assassinated, Martin Luther King being assassinated, all these kind of things like just piling up. Like every month there was, it seemed like there was some new beyond horrific, appalling end times thing that would happen. And, um, and yet he was like, yeah, well, you know, yeah. you sort of, uh, it's not yeah. like he was brushing it off. He was just saying, yeah, but it wasn't every day. Yeah. And he, he, it was just nice to get his perspective on it because he'd written a song on, on McCartney three, I think about, about that really about, about people sort of going like, oh my God, we're all fucked. And, and him saying, well, probably not, you know. I think basically what everyone wants to know when they hear McCartney being interviewed is basically what's it like being Paul McCartney, <laughs> you know? And um, Yeah, yeah. Because mm. when we saw him at the Royal Festival Hall the other week, Samira Ahmed 
uh, I can't remember what she was chairing the, the, the conversation, but I can't remember what the question was, but he started talking about maybe a grandson of his mm-hmm. or someone in his family was at school and was doing an essay about the sixties and the kind of social upheavals and the, you know, the change, you know, the cultural kind of revolutions that were happening. And Paul McCartney said, so I spoke yeah. to him and like everyone sort of laughed and he sort of, he's sort of like, why are you laughing? But it's like, everyone's laughing because like, well, because that's, that was you, you caused that, <laughs> you know? And that's the thing where it's like, you know, to have that live a personal life, but also to have been basically responsible for basically representing what the 60s was you know it's so unimaginable you know that's right but like and yeah to be yeah. one of the key players i know it's so weird and yet he didn't he didn't act as if yeah. he felt like that you know he was like well yeah we were backstage mm. we we're going to do a show when we heard uh, kennedy had been shot and you know it was really but they they just felt like well they they were in their mm. own little bubble mm. and they were just getting on with yeah. what they had to do so they don't, they, you get the impression that he didn't really feel, you know, they didn't feel part yeah. of, yeah, we're, we're yeah. history making culture <laughs> yeah. shapers at yeah. all. But that's, I mean, that's a great thing you said about the, the interviews, the questions he does respond to kind of tend to be the more normal, everyday kind of questions. And I thought that <laughs> it makes me think of, because mm. you, you mentioned before about the film Two of Us. And I, I started. I started oh, watching yeah, a yeah. bit of it after you emailed. And the thing that's kind of interesting about that film, which is about Paul and John meeting in the in about 1976, uh, Paul visited John in New York, uh, and it's kind of a fictionalized account of what might have happened that day. And, but the funny thing about the two of them is that they're always talking in kind of real profundities, <laughs> whereas what would have actually happened yeah. was it would have been about hummus and bagels you know or something like that you know but but yeah but what what what's what do you think of that film adam i like it a lot and i think i came across it one evening i was away from home and there was you know i'd just done a show or something i went back to my hotel room and just wanted to watch something stupid and maybe i was on a jag of watching a lot of beatles interviews um and I'd listened to a really interesting interview with uh, George Harrison. Have you heard him being interviewed by Howard Smith? Is that an American chat show host? Uh, No, he's a a radio host. WABCFM in New York City, this DJ Howard Smith. And I think you can still buy the audio if you search for Howard Smith. And he interviewed all sorts of rock luminaries and he did a couple of interviews with Lennon and with Yoko and there's one he does with George Harrison in May 1970 and it is really strange because Harrison is totally straight and open and he's just answering every single question in a way that you couldn't conceive of someone doing now even Mm. if they're just promoting Mm. some boring Marvel film you know what I mean they're going to be all cagey and oh no I don't want to do any spoilers and I don't want to say anything bitchy about any of the cast and I don't want to imply that maybe the film is a little bit boring and shit or anything like that you know (laughs) everyone has just got to keep it totally on message and airtight and you wouldn't even think about asking someone about their financial arrangements mm. or, but he's totally candid about it anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. So I was w- listening to that interview and watching John Lennon interviews. And then I came across this film, which actually I think they've removed from YouTube now, but you can still see clips mm. and it's called two of us. And it is, uh, as you say about Lennon and McCartney coming together 
Um, and who is in it? It is uh, Jared Harris, who, of course, was in Mad Men and um, Chernobyl. And uh, who's the other guy? Aiden Quinn. Aiden Quinn, exactly. Yeah. With a slightly ropey Liverpudlian accent. Yeah, some of the accents are a bit uh, t- Taffin-esque at times. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. But not too bad. Yeah. And they're both talented no. actors. And it's very, Michael yeah. Lindsay Hogg who directed it. And yeah. Yeah. from 2000, Lindsay Hogg uh, directed the videos for Paperback Writer and Rain and Hey Jude and Revolution. So he's part of the kind well, of... And made the Let It Be film as mm. well. Oh, yeah, there you go. Mm. Yeah, And mm. it's really not bad. Like, even though it's got a lot of um, bio, you know, uh, biopic cliches. Yeah, it's the definition of wiggy. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, a lot of dodgy hair pieces going on. But actually, it get, really gets to the core mm. of that relationship. In a, it does. And, it's it, and it's really... It's quite and TV movie, but the writing is really good. It mm. wrestles with... Um, a lot of kind of interesting double act dynamics. I mean, that's partly, I think, why they were so fascinating, the Beatles, is that Lennon and McCartney were this perfect kind of light and shade combo. Uh, And that's what made them so good. But obviously there was more to it than that. But also they were like, they, it felt like, uh, especially if you were a boy and a kind of, you know, heterosexual boy, like, most best friend relationships are like that. You know, it's usually a pair of opposites. Mm. One guy is the Paul, the other guy is the darker Lennon. And, you know, you're really close, you love each other. And then maybe in your teenage years, uh, girls get, you know, become involved and you feel a real jealousy when suddenly your best mate starts going out with a girl and it's like, oh no, she's ruined everything. And, um, you know, that seemed to all play out in the relationship between Mm. John and Paul and with the arrival of Yoko and Linda and the, the tensions. And so all of this stuff is examined in, in two of us in the film and in a quite good way, as you say, like it's all very, um, on the nose in a Mm. funny way, a lot of the time. But it's really not bad. Like it does get mm. to the it gets to the nub of all those things that that drive that dynamic, and um, and I asked Paul about it when I spoke to him on the podcast, sort of wondering if he'd immediately say, "Oh, either no, I haven't seen it," or "Oh, it's bullshit." You know, it's embarrassing kind of thing. Um, but actually, he didn't. He didn't dismiss it out of hand at all. And I got the impression that he had a soft spot for it. And he, he sort of said, no, I like it because it makes it clear from the top that it's fictionalized. Mm. Uh, it, it's, But I think he, I got the impression from him that actually maybe it did come fairly close to some of the things that were going mm. on between mm. him and John, albeit in a very silly theatrical way. And I think, didn't he particularly sort of point out Aidan Quinn, who played Paul. So to kind of point that out maybe shows that he did think there was something of himself. In, yeah. You know, yeah. I think so. Yeah. And one thing I didn't do actually with Paul McCartney was uh, I transcribed a few lines from one of the scenes in the film. Yeah. And I had it in my head like, well, if, if everything's going really well, then maybe I can recreate the scene <laughs> with Paul McCartney and I'll be Lennon yeah. and he can be Paul. And uh, so I had this this little scene. Uh, why don't you, should we do it? Yeah, sure. Come on, who's going to be Paul? Jack, do you want to take him? Um, yeah, I'll give it a go. I mean, you, I do quite, you do quite a good Paul, don't you? I mean, it'll be better than Aidan Quinn. 
<laughs> I want you to go hard into the impression. I'm going to go hard into John. All right. All right. I've I've sent you. I have now sent you the exchange. Yeah, I've got. Uh, I've got. The can script. you see it, Jack? Yeah. All I right. Can, here yeah. we go. So this is a pivotal moment from the the two of us, the film from 2000, directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, and I think it, it gets to the core this scene of the the dynamic that drives the genius of Lennon and McCartney, starting with Paul. I think it helps to have some kind of public recognition. Otherwise, how do you know if you, what you've done is any good? You're daft, you are. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's northern, isn't it? Um, that's, that's all right. You're daft, you are. I mean, how many adoring fans do you need to know you're good? You've got to say goodbye to mummy and daddy. Otherwise, you're just looking for approval, trying to please because it makes you feel wanted. What's wrong with that? i like to know. <laughs> well, who are you really if all you're concerned with is making other people happy? This is the worst John Lennon impression in the world. <laughs> you need to chew, chew some gum. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't make people happy be part of who you are. Trying to make other people happy is like giving them a blanket and a piece of candy to chew on, you know? you got to stir people up, got to make them uneasy, make them miserable, make them wish they'd never been born. That's the only way they'll wake up and face reality. And whose reality do you want them to face, John? Yours? Everybody's in pain, Paul. If you want to do some real good, you got to stop singing silly little love songs, mate. That was very applause good. For applause. Very good. <laughs> Amazing. But um, quite good, I think, at just sort of stripping bare the uh, complicated relationship between them and, and something that I, I'm sure was real, i.e. Mm. Paul's desire to make people happy, to look on the bright yeah. side of life, to be an optimist. He'd had a, uh, and he says himself, you know, that he'd, had a kind of luckier, happier childhood than Lennon had. And, um, and you know, that, that dynamic, that's the core of every artistic venture, I think. is like, mm -hmm. am I going to be one of these people who wants a happy ending and who thinks that people deserve and need a happy ending and to see something beautiful about life? Or am I going to be the kind of artist that, wants to wake people up and who thinks that people need to be reminded that life's a bowl of shite. And um, <laughs> it's really, you know, they really explore that, I think, in quite a good mm. way in uh, yeah. Two of Us. Yeah, it's such a good exchange. I think it's yeah. better now that we dramatised it. Yeah, it's much better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do, that's so interesting, the idea that Paul is the kind of people pleaser in terms of, and that's why melodically... And you can hear that in the way he writes songs. And John is the kind of one who's, it's more about stirring people up. Yeah. He wants to antagonize people and give yeah. them a slap. Yeah. Um, and Paul wants everyone to be nicey-nicey. But, but it's not as simple as that because that makes mm. it sound insipid and that makes him sound like a, a coward. But he wasn't, you know, he was hard nosed, obviously, and um, got what he wanted. And he was perfectly capable of being ruthless. But mm. um, but he valued sweetness and thought it was a worthwhile part of of making art. Um, mm. And so that's why I found the whole how do you sleep exchange so interesting, you know, because mm. because 
as far as I'm aware, what sparked it off for John was too many people on uh, on Ram, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But that's a, I think it's pretty paranoid to read that into the lyrics of that song. I mean, it's relatively innocuous and totally innocuous. A massive yeah. reaction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what the, the line is: "Too many people preaching practices," and um, you took your lucky break and broke it in two. I think those mm. were the two offending lines. Yeah. And obviously, there must have been that there was all sorts of tension. Uh, underlying that and the rivalry between Lennon and McCartney creatively, as well as the intervention of uh, Linda and Yoko and the tensions that created. So it's all feeding into it. So just the tiniest dig at uh, John and Yoko with too many people preaching practices or whatever, that's it. That the touch paper has been lit. And then you get How Do You Sleep, which is just this endless screed of the the meanest things he can think of saying, that any one of which would just pierce you right through the heart if you heard it from someone you loved. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, how serious do you think John was being? I mean, that's the kind of... 100% in the moment. Right. I don't buy his thing when he sort of backtracks of like, you know, it's really a song about me. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it is, but it's also about yeah. him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in the Imagine film, you see them laying the track down, right? And mm. there's one bit where he's saying, um, he's just being incredibly matter of fact and businesslike about, about uh, getting the song to sound the way he wants it. This incredibly negative song. Mm. And he says at one point, um, oh, it's got to be, it's got to be right. It can't swing. It's a nasty song. You know, mm. he's saying like, you know, uh, this is like a really horrible, hurtful song. So uh, <laughs> yeah. let's, yeah. Let, let's try and make that uh, come through in the way we're recording it. It can't be fun. Yeah, yeah. This is not a fun song. This is a song that's going to mortally wound my, um, my writing partner and one of my best friends. So let's really make that happen, guys. Come on. <laughs> let's make it as unpleasant as possible. Yeah. I did like in your version, my favorite lyric of yours. So you, in, on the podcast, you, you kind of recorded your, or no, no, sorry, you found an unreleased take of it. That's right, isn't it? That's the version. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my uh, incredibly contrived build up to being able to play my parody of How Do You Sleep? Yeah. <laughs> the lyric, uh, some people think your eyes are like those of a sweet puppy dog, but to me, they just <laughs> look like two giant piles of shit. That was, a, that was my favorite lyric. <laughs> I felt that it was like that. That was more or less the same level that he was operating on with yeah, the real lyrics. Sure. Yeah, it's yeah. so vicious. Do you mind if yeah. we play that for people who might not have heard it now? Uh, I'd be delighted. I do not think the cheesy music you make is good. If Stevie Wonder asked you to do a song comparing race relations to a piano keyboard, I bet you would. Some people think your eyes are like those in the sweet puppy dog. But to me, they just look like two giant piles of shit. Paul McCartney, I'm upset 
There you go. Ooh. That was good fun singing on that. I love that. That's my favorite way of spending some time downloading a karaoke version of a song <laughs> and just going nuts over it. How did you get the kind of Lennon kind of slapback? Did he take take quite a while to get kind of convincing yeah, Lennon? Yeah, just a lot of sound? a lot of twiddling i googled it first of all like yeah. vocal effect on how do you sleep sometimes that's all you need to do and uh, yeah, someone's yeah. put the answer right there for you but on this sure. occasion no i just had to go through logic and fiddle with every single setting until i finally <laughs> got something that sounded similar Amazing. well i think we can all agree it's better than the original <laughs> <laughs> but I, that was another thing actually that i was thinking shall I play this to Paul? Would Paul oh, find shock. this funny? Because I'd had Robbie Williams on my podcast mm, and, yeah. um, and I played him a song, a parody I did of a song of his called Rude Box. And it was quite a pointed parody because I wasn't a massive Robbie Williams fan mm. back in the day, certainly not around the time of Rude Box. <laughs> but, um, you know, we were having a nice chat. We'd been introduced by John Ronson, the journalist, mm. who'd met Robbie doing some other weird UFO show or something. And, uh, and it felt a bit dishonest not to tell him that I'd once done this version of Rude Box. And also I, I thought that he would take it in good spirit because he's he's a pretty uh, easygoing guy in that respect. Mm. He's willing to laugh at himself and talk candidly about all sorts of stuff. So in the end, I did play it to him and he, he seemed fine, but I've met quite a few people since then who said, oh my God, I just had to turn off when you started playing him that song you did. Uh, they said that was the most cringy thing I've ever heard. Really? I was like, wow. why? Because they were like, well, the, I guess the rudeness, it just feels so rude. <laughs> Right. and confrontational but that's really not why i did it no. and anyway the response to me doing that made me think mm, probably shouldn't play paul mccartney the uh, how do you sleep <laughs> i remember mark radcliffe and mark riley used to do this thing on their radio one show where they did parodies of songs and they did a, one of john spencer blues the shire horses oh yeah yeah the shire horses yeah and they played yeah they, they had great. john spencer blues explosion in session and they played it to them and they absolutely did not get it or uh, like complete <laughs> silence you know <laughs> it's really funny i, I mean usually that then. stuff doesn't work out it's yeah. like tom hiddleston doing the de niro impression next to de niro on graham norton <laughs> christ i mean yeah. de niro did a pretty good uh, job that's of... one of his best performances of the last 10 years i think yeah <laughs> <laughs> humoring that but I... On the, you know, you're sort of thinking like, and it was perfectly good impression that uh, Hiddleston did. Uh, yeah, I think so. It was fine. Better than his man in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> but you're sort of thinking that that was definitely a, a kind of oh, I think I might have to switch off moment. <laughs> um, so that's I, I'm glad that I didn't play the thing to Paul McCartney. Good, yeah. I, probably, I think it was probably the right decision, but we, you never know. I think it probably was, yeah. <laughs> One question we ask everyone on the podcast yeah. is, uh, do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? Yes, but it's probably one that you've been given before. That's okay. They're underrated. <laughs> I agree. But, yeah, yeah, that's good. And we, we haven't had that before, but that is... Uh, I really, really do think that, though. Yeah. yeah. They are the template for so much good and some bad in modern culture. But they did it all. They they innovated 
before anyone else in so many ways. They got cancelled before <laughs> anybody got cancelled in the pop world, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. When uh, Lennon said they were bigger than Jesus, and they 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 did it all, and it was and it's all of it stands up. Um, the shit bits are really not that shit, mm-hmm. and um, it it's just the gift that keeps giving, and and every mm-hmm. generation finds something new in it, and it means something different depending on what's going on in the world, and it repays intense scrutiny, and um, I love it, man. It's great, and as much, and you know when you meet people who say oh, I'm not fussed, you just think, okay, fair enough, but one day you will be. Um, and you know, you, you just think, well, fine, but that's a pose, you know, cause, mm-hmm. because if you can't find anything in there, then yeah, good, good luck. luck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, before we conclude, I would really like to drag the whole podcast down into the gutter please, <laughs> and, um, read a list that I was really fond of coming up with that I, Maybe I put this in in the background of a, a thing I did on the Bug TV show. Bug is this live show where I talk about music videos and we did a TV version back in 2012. And maybe I worked this in somehow as a quick visual gag. But um, I always was fond of it and no one thought it was funny. And it was a, th- <laughs> and I, a thing that I nicked off John Holmes, the comedian, uh, uh-huh. who would do similar things, maybe on Twitter, of... Um, and it's just scatological Beatles titles. <laughs> um, and I've got, this is a fun game that anyone can play at home. Mm-hmm. I've got the long, the long and winding turd, <laughs> brown submarine, twist and, <laughs> you don't have to respond to any of these if you want. You can sit That's in silence. I'm just going to read them. All right. <laughs> twist and shite, uh, dear Pudence. <laughs> We can work it out. You don't even have to change no, the title good. for that one. That's good. Yeah. Back in the Poo SSR. Poo D, Poo Da. That's not a good one. <laughs> Why don't we do it in the road? Again, <laughs> don't have to change anything. Uh, within you, without you. Sergeant Pooper's Lonely Farts Club Band. <laughs> and of course, Black Turd. Black, Black Turd's training in the dead of <laughs> night. Lovely. Take these laxatives and learn to shite. (laughs) All this time, I was only waiting for the... I haven't finished the rest of that. (laughs) Still working on that. Yeah, that's excellent. That reminds me of... uh, There was a pub in Bristol where on on the inside of one of the cubicles, it has the the last film you you watched is the name of the poo you've just done and someone had done the remain the remains of the day which was, i thought that was quite clever uh, so, um. i mean it does make me laugh that stuff I, it, it yeah. used to make joe uh, i'm sure it makes a lot of people cringe and, and joe always hated it when i did stuff like that on the radio show <laughs> he thought we were it, it, it dragged us down too much but not for me So that was our interview with Adam Buxton. Great times. Sorry it got so scatological. <laughs> well, well no, I actually don't think we should apologise. No, we should encourage people to send in their own scatological yeah. Beatles Dear. songs. Dear that's Poo probably cool. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot more fun to be had there. Yeah. 
thank you so much to Adam for coming on. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that, especially as a sort of lifelong Adam and Joe fan. Yes, thanks so much, Adam. And uh, we'll be back. We've got probably one more episode for the year um, with the brilliant Sean Keaveney, another alumnus of Six Music. Yep. Um, we got a fascinating chat with him. It's, it's quite let it be heavy as well. So Yeah, I mean, it was just, we felt we recorded it maybe not that long after let it be super deluxe came out so there's a lot of chat on that but it was great it was so funny and some fantastic impressions yes much much better than my paul mccartney <laughs> i must say um but for now thank you so much for downloading and tell your friends about this episode if you wish if that is your want and uh yeah we'll see you with sean keaveney next week until then Keep beetling on. Yes, got it right this week. <laughs> Superb. KBO. KBO. <laughs> yes. Yeah, toodles. Bye. Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.